There's no moral victories when you only have 18 games to go. The Mets rallied from a 6-0 deficit, but found a way to lose 9-8 in 10 innings to the Phillies. <sighs> we looked back at the Mets splitting the four-game series with their NL East rivals. Look ahead to the games against the Orioles and debate whether or not this team can go on a run and make the playoffs. We also chat with the winningest Mets pitcher of the 2000s decade, the human rain delay, Steve Traxel. All that and more next on Amazing But True from the New York Post. Queens, New York. Mets take the field. So amazing, amazing but true, orange and blue, so amazing. Here's the pitch. New York folks, it's out of here. We got you. I hope you're sitting down, folks. Welcome to Amazing But True, our New York Mets podcast from the New York Post. That's former Matt and my co-host, Nelson Figueroa. I'm his handsome, bald-headed co-host, Jake Brown. got to tell people you're handsome. You definitely don't have to tell them you're bald-headed. If you're listening to this right now, do us a favor. Stop what you're doing. Go into Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the show. Then give us a five-star rating and write in a positive review. If you don't use Apple, like me, subscribe on Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts from. We appreciate your support and promise to continue bringing you the best Mets content and guests. Speaking of guests, we are joined later today by the great Steve Traxel. That's right, the human rain delay will join us in the second half of the show. But Figgy, oh boy! Thursday we honored the late great Tom Seaver. An emotional show for us to get through, and now it's back to normal Mets ranting and raving. You felt so good about the Mets after Thursday, and they won for Seaver and Pete Alonso's walk-off homer. You know they had a blip in the radar Friday with a loss. Saturday and Sunday, two wins, fourteen runs for Degrom. A week before the football season began, it was like the Jets scored two touchdowns. Degrom got all the run support in the world. Life was good. Life was grand. And then Monday comes around, Figgy. And how could you not be disgruntled after this? Down 6 nothing. They fought back. They take the lead 7-6 with Jeff McNeil's two-run homer. You get some positive contributions. Erasmo Ramirez, awesome. Five innings, gives up one homer to Real Muto, and that's it. And then Familia blows it. It's tied. And then extra innings comes along, Figgy. Edwin Diaz goes 12 pitches, 1-2-3, easy inning. There's a couple of thoughts that go through your mind here going into the 10th inning, Figgy. One, you could bring Edwin Diaz back in. As crazy as it sounds, you can bring him back in the game. And I would have. After 12 pitches, call me crazy, would have brought him back in. As bad as Diaz has been in save situations, his ERA for the year, which I was stunned by when you saw it after the game, is 2.12. He's actually been good in situations that weren't really the ninth inning and big spots and you have a lead. He's been solid. And should have stayed in. If not, have the plug ready to be pulled on Miguel Castro quickly. Have Justin Wilson miss someone more reliable than a guy that got here six days ago, has been used four times in six days, has given up four runs in his four appearances so far. He just got here. He's being used in a tight spot, a tie game, runner automatically at second base, and he just got here. I don't get it. First off, Brody trades away the minor league pitcher of the year for a guy who's been consistently below average out of the pen. I'm sick of hearing he's got good stuff. 
I don't care. He left a ball right down the middle for Gene Segura, who has become a Met killer. If you remember the game where he homered against Edwin Diaz last year in Philly and blew the game, he did it again off Miguel Castro. And Figgy, I'm sick and tired. I had to go for a walk for coffee and get my fat ass a cookie. I offset my sugar-free coffee with a fattening cookie because I can't take Luis Rojas continuing to not have someone ready in the pen and putting all of his trust in a guy that just got here. He just got to the New York Mets and has consistently been bad. Why was he in the game? Why is Diaz not in? Why is Wilson not ready to go? Why are you not walking Segura to face Didi? Segura's tearing the cover off the ball today. How do you not have these situations ready to go here, especially knowing this, Figgy? Andres Jimenez was going to be your runner at second in the bottom of the inning. So not to say you have an automatic run, but you have your speedy base runner, the guy who's been playing incredible defense. If there's a silver lining to take away from today, it's Andres Jimenez has to be considered possibly your starting shortstop next season over Med Rosario. The defense, the hitting, he's been doing it all for this team, and he would have been your base runner. Instead, Home run, boom, Castro, Mets end up losing 9-8. I'm sick of Luis Rojas mismanaging this bullpen. He's been a disgrace, and this is a kind of loss that you hate with 18 games to go. It is a two-game turnaround in the standings. They're now three and a half back by the Phillies when they could have been one and a half. They could have been a half game out of the playoffs. Now they're two games out plus with more games to go here. It is a disastrous loss and really gut-wrenching when you thought of the comeback they made. I am furious at this loss of the Phillies and series split when you should have won three out of four. Without a doubt, um, you hit all points on the head. And when it comes to options of what you have available for that 10th inning, with 18 games left to go, you kind of have to play it like it's the seventh game of the World Series, right? What you're trying to do is prevent that run from scoring because when you do come up and you have to almost goal line stand on this run from scoring, you have a guy with speed that you would put out there as a pinch runner, no matter who the runner was. If it was Alonzo having to run, you would put a pinch runner of Jimenez's speed out there. So you have the advantage there going into the bottom of that inning. And you're at home. Seems easy, right? Get him over, get him in, game over. So in that case, you've got to go goal line stance. And after Castro gets the two outs, and there were huge two outs, talking about Bryce Harper and Real Muto, he gets the two outs. There's a runner on third, base open at first, and Segura, who's their hottest hitter on the day, and as you said, has been becoming fast a Met killer. You're trying to entice him to hit a breaking ball off the plate. You're trying to entice him to swing at a pitch outside the strike zone. He missed mightily. It was supposed to be a fastball away off the plate. He missed mightily, catches plate, and leaves the yard. He shouldn't have had that opportunity to do that because goal line stance Castro is not in the game. Castro is out. I'm going to my lefty and facing Didi Gregorius. I don't care if Segura steals second base. That means I got my guys playing back on the right side and I'm able to knock a ball down, keep them from scoring the go-ahead run. So it makes a lot more sense when you look at it that way. Goal line stance. I don't care how many pitchers you use to keep them from scoring that run in the 10th. So if you want to match up, that's great. He faced the three hitters. Wonderful. Done. Get him out. You bring in one of your guys that are your horses, like Justin Wilson to face the lefty, Didi Gregorius. That's the matchup that we should have saw. Not take your chances with Castro not making a mistake because he has pitched in four out of six games. He's bound to make a mistake, and he did. 
and the Mets paid for it. They wind up scoring the one run, like we said, it was going to be the easy one. Jimenez there, Nimmo hits the ball through the hole, and then you get the run there. Still, I did think that they had a shot to win the game. I still saw illusions of grandeur that one of those next two guys was going to put the ball into the seats. We had seen it happen today in a major, major way. And that game was exciting. That game was a lot of silver linings. Andres Jimenez playing defense all over the field, a breath of fresh air to see the Mets playing good defense. And then to see it kind of just, just a lack of preparation, one split second of looking down at the lineup card and not realizing, hey, let's do this right now. This is our best shot. This is our best matchup. Hindsight's always 20-20, and I hate to do it, but it, it, it's a better matchup for me. Wilson versus Didi Gregoris. That's what I'm going with. That's 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 how I'm going to be doing my postgame interview if I'm the manager. Hey, why'd you bring in Wilson? Man, I like the matchup against Wilson against Didi. I do not like the matchup of Segura versus a fastball. That's another thing. Um, I didn't like the matchup of... Familia throwing a two-seamer, a sinker, away to Baum because as we've seen with Familia, his sinker is exceptional. If you haven't faced his sinker before, it's very difficult to get on top of. But if he's throwing it away and it's coming back to the strike zone, you can kind of just pepper it like Baum did and hit that base hit. I don't understand why they were pitching away to Baum. Throw him three sinkers in on his hands. If he hits a ground ball, it's an out. That's what Familia is really, really good at. Pitching out all over the plate, that was a big mistake also. So I've seen some good. I've seen some bad. I've seen some ugly. And this loss was ugly, but this loss was almost had in the second inning because they left in Peterson way too long. Ramirez comes in and does the job that you hoped a long reliever would be able to do. We've, we've seen this time and time again. Gaselman is not a starter. I'm glad he's back in the bullpen. But you had him also available. You had so many options available. What I need to see more is urgency, right? 18 games left to play, urgency. Because you are playing your interdivision rivals. You are playing the Phillies. And it sends a message when you win a series at home. That's what you're trying to do. And when you come back in a game like that, down six runs, and you're able to strike, and McNeil's getting hot, and all these guys are hitting 280, 290, 300, 340, it's great to see on paper, but it's not equating to wins. And that's where little decisions, like what we saw in the 10th inning, will matter most. That's where you're going to go back at the end of the year and say, we could have won this one. We should have won this one. This one, we definitely should have won the, the five runs with two outs to the Yankees. It's those little decisions where you can't have blind faith in people, not in playoff caliber baseball, not in do or die situations with 18 games left to play. I'm not having blind faith in a guy who has no track record. I take the guys who have the track record. Justin Wilson should have been in the game. I don't feel comfortable with <laughs> I don't feel comfortable with Miguel Castro facing Gene Simmons, let alone Gene Segura. Come on. Put Gene Simmons up there. I still don't want Miguel Castro pitching. Like you said, Zero track record. Zero. He has done nothing in the big leagues. But, of course, it warns Brody to trade away a huge piece of your farm system. Another depleted piece as I stuff a cookie in my face because of how much I need to stress eat over this team. Figgy, defend the trade. Please, try and defend that trade for me. Uh, no defending of the trade, but I will have to uh, explain this again. You can't have a five-year plan on a three-year deal. And with new ownership coming into town, you have to win now. So you can trade away the farm system. What do you care what the Mets farm system looks like in three years down the line? If you don't win now, you're out of a job. So that's what Brody's trying to do. And what did he do? He tried to upgrade the bullpen. In three out of the six outings so far, or three out of the six days that he's pitched, or three out of the six days that he's been here, I should say, he's pitched pretty well. He's got explosive stuff. He's got, you know, one of those wipeout sliders. But if you're using him four out of six games, it's going to wear him down. He's going from 
not being really counted on. He's a rubber arm guy. Go back and look at what he's done this year. He's a rubber arm guy, and he's pitched every other day um, when the team has needed him to, and that's one of the reasons you went out and got him. The minor league pitcher of the year is sitting at home watching the Mets play. It doesn't them no good. So they needed a piece. They got a piece. Said the same thing about Frazier and said the same thing about Chirinos. And they're paying off some dividends. There has been a shift, it feels like. There was more confidence. There was more having fun. Frazier's doing the little dances. He's doing the polar bear thing. He's got the squirrel dance. There's little elements in that clubhouse where maybe they help lighten the load. Chirinos is being counted on as that defensive catcher where I thought Tomas Nito was that guy, you know, and, and knows the pitcher a lot better than Chirinos would know them, especially in those situations late in the ball game. Um, Wilson Ramos, there were, there were several blocks by Chirinos that Ramos doesn't get to point blank. So I I've liked Chirinos ability to catch. If I hear them say one more time, he's been brought here for his power. I don't know what they are talking about. Every ball he said is a ground ball. <laughs> it's not, it's not as if this guy has hit, you know, 30 home runs a year. He's not a Mike Piazza home run type hitter, but they're like, Oh, he's, he's here for his power. Yeah. And his 119 batting average. What I need out of him is to do what he's continuing to do, block balls, be able to have these pitchers throw. He's, he's got them feeling very confident. I'm, I'm seeing some good things. What do you do now? Because we already seen Jimenez take over at shortstop. Rosario is, is you know, hey, if it's a blowout and you can get Jimenez off his feet for a few innings, that's where Rosario's coming in. And we'll see if Rosario plays as a start, a left-handed starter tomorrow. Well, that's a and, big question because do you move – you remember the talk was do you remove Rosario to the outfield, but where is there a spot in the outfield? Because Conforto's going to – should be here for the next 20 years. Uh, Nimmo has been all right and probably should stay. And the options in left field, you got Davis and McNeil. I, I don't know if there's even a spot for Rosario unless maybe one of them plays third, but even there you got Davis. It's they got a tough question to answer this offseason because Rosario, you don't want to give up on him too soon. But if you can get pitching for him, which they desperately need with the way Jimenez's look, you got to do it. Yeah, I mean, 1000% Rosario. But are you also hurting his trade stock as he's not playing? He's having the worst season of his career and he's sitting the bench now, losing his job to a 22 year old. And what is that saying about his stock? What are you going to, you think teams are going to be like, Oh yeah, let's, let's give you some of our best players. And for that, they're not going to, they're going to feel like it may be a failed experiment. What my problem has always been with Rosario is for his skill set, He doesn't steal bases. He runs very well. He's the fastest guy on the team, but he doesn't know how to steal bases. The big leagues is not a place you go to learn how to play the game in a well-rounded game. They tried doing that with his first year with Mickey Callaway. He was taking extra bunting practice. He was learning how to uh, get better reads at first base. He was working with a former GM, Ruben Amaro Jr., on doing those things, which again, serves you where the mindset is of this organization. Not Ricky Henderson, but Ruben Amaro Jr. Those things are adding up. And when people get comfortable, and Rosario had gotten comfortable because he was heir to the throne. Since Reyes, they haven't had such an exciting shortstop. And they got that. He kind of, I, I won't say he got comfortable, but he did not see Jimenez coming and taking his job. He did not see that. No one saw that. We questioned why he was even on this roster because maybe he could bunt and he could run and he could do all the little things that you're saying, okay, we'll save Rosario for those roles in the eighth, ninth, and 10th inning extra runner kind of role. But you're looking at a, a, a culture shift that's happening when ownership is being changed over as well. It's exciting when you see a player like Jimenez play well on so many facets of the game, hitting, running, defense, the whole nine yards. He's the whole package. And, and we've we've heard about all these guys when they came up, even when Dom first came up. It was gold glove first baseman, and this guy was a can't miss. And he missed a lot in the beginning, but it's starting to come around for him. 
right? The game is really slowed down for him. You're seeing quality at bat after quality at bat. You're seeing this guy tear the cover off the ball, doubles and home runs all season long. And it's been great to see all the Dom Smith stands uh, on in Twitter are going nuts about him right now. So the team is set up to hit and they're leading all of Major League Baseball. I repeat, leading all of Major League Baseball in batting average. So they are doing some things well, but it only takes one bad pitch, as we saw today with Castro, to turn that all around. That was a game that statement game. That's the game you come back amazing finishes on SNY. That's the game that you you told everybody, remember when I turned off the game and I tuned back in just as I saw McNeil hit the home run. That's a statement game. And they let it go all because the manager was not prepared to not take a chance. He did take a chance by leaving him in. What he had to do was go with the guys that are supposed to keep you in ball games like Justin Wilson, the back end of that bullpen, guys to finish off. And even if it was bringing in Gaselman for the sinker ball, you know, that's what you're looking to do. Nobody was up in the bullpen even. That's mind-boggling. I'm done making the excuse that it's a shortened season for him and, you know, guys get overused and no off days. I'm done with it. Luis Rojas has been ill-prepared as a manager. He has made wrong decision after wrong decision. And I know hindsight's 2020. I get it. But it's inexcusable to use a guy four times in six days who has been notoriously below average as a reliever when you have other guys available. I'd be more comfortable using Chase and Shreve or Brad Brock on the second day of a back-to-back than I am Castro because they've been here more than just a cup of coffee a week. And Steve Cohen's got to clean house. I'm sorry. He's got to get rid of the manager. I said this last week. He's got to get rid of the GM. Brody has been a clown show from Cano to trading Dunn, Justin Dunn, who has been looked great in the big leagues. Kalenich, who's going to be good and is expected to be good to trading three prospects for Keon Broxton to trading two prospect for Jake Marisnik, who's barely played and is a backup outfielder to trading a prospect for Billy Hamilton, who, by the way, is designated for assignment. He's off the team. The Cubs claimed him. He's gone to trading two of your top pitching prospects for Marcus Stroman, who, bought, by the way, made 11 starts, is off the team. He's gone to trading a prospect and your minor league pitcher of the year for Miguel Castro, who we're going to be stuck watching now because he's arbitration eligible for two years, and the cheat Mets are going to keep him. He's stuck. Brody stinks. He's a con man. That's what he is. He is a con man. That's what he is. He's Bernie Madoff in a suit. That's what he is. He's a con man. That's How do you know what, Bernie Madoff didn't have a suit? He Well, you know what? He, he's, a, he's a handsomer Bernie Madoff in a nicer-looking suit with nicer hair. I'll say that. Brody, get out of town. I'm sick of trading the future for bumps. At least get good players. And I'm not even going to hate on the Frazier trade because we don't even know that player to be named later could be a Hall of Famer with the Mets track record. Who knows? Robinson Torino's his return could be the next uh, Lou Brock. Rest in peace. We lost Lou Brock. Forgot to mention that as well. I mean, it is just... I mean, I can't take it. I can't. I can't. I'm. I'm. I'm losing non-existent hair over this team. I can't take it anymore. Jake, 17 games left to play. 18 games left to play. Um, Listen, uh, they are. 
still doing good things. They have to take care of business over the next. How many times are we going to say taking care of business? It's like we're at Shea and they just want a game. Taking care of business every day. They can't do it any day. They have to. Uh, they have done it. They have done it. They have not done it. They have not put together a seven-game winning streak. No, not in at least bit because their starters have been so terrible. Case in point, Peterson today should not have been left in after throwing 30-some-odd 30, 30 pitch, 37 pitches in the first inning. There used to be a cardinal rule. After the starter gives up 35 pitches in the first inning, no matter what happens, he's out of the game, especially a young kid who just came off the IL. Therefore, end of which, you have long relievers around because of that. You were down three runs. And it was a bad pitch. The Segura hits down the line. Great, whatever. I'm not even trying to write it off for him and say Peterson only made a few mistakes. He made big mistakes. And and, and that's not what we've seen from him, not what we've known to expect from him. He did a great job in, in relieving the other day. He comes in today and he just didn't have it. That happens. One of those five starts that you have is going to be horrible. It's what do you do with the other three that you have okay stuff? One of the games you have lights out stuff and you feel tremendous. So in the five starts in a month, this is always bound to happen. It was a terrible time for it to happen because you know he just came off of that high of pitching and relief those four innings. But that's the manager's job. That's the pitching coach's job who to turn around and say, hey, you know what? Let's count our losses and maybe bring them back a little early. Maybe put them, piggyback them again because you're going to need somebody to piggyback, piggyback them again so that he can throw some more innings in relief and get his stuff stretched out again. But I don't understand leaving him in there to kind of take his punches. 70 pitches in two innings. 70. 70. You're talking about guys going 80 as a full starter. He went 70 in two innings. That is not okay. Not with 18 games left to play. No chance. I think Luis Rojas is taking melatonin in the first inning of games because, you know, within the next 30 minutes to an hour, he's asleep. I mean, he's getting put to sleep. I don't know if he's listening to ASMR, which, by the way, I was listening to ASMR the other day because everyone talks about it helps you go to sleep. I felt like I was in a horror movie. I mean, it is creepy, especially the ones where they whisper and they're like, hello, Jay. It's like a, it's like Lord of the Rings. It's like a gremlin is talking to me. I've, I will never try and sleep to ASMR because I was having nightmares listening to that. So whoever says they use that to sleep, I'm sorry, you're probably crazy. Um, because it is creepy. It, that's going off a deep end. That's a whole another episode of Amazing But True. Um, but yeah, not sleeping ASMR. Um, you know what? Brody's a con, man. That's all I got to say. Big games coming up, like you said. Right now, essentially, there are a couple of games back in the wild card. It, it changes every day. There's 18 games left, and it's not easy. They're going to need, not a miracle, but close to it. Coming up is two versus the Orioles at home who have been playing better, and there are a couple of games behind the reeling Yankees, which if there's any uh, bright spot to take from this is that the Yankees, sorry, Sarah, are just losing at an uh, enormous pace, which is nice to see. Three at the Blue Jays in Buffalo. Remember, they are the Buffalo Blue Jays this year. Three at the Phillies. An- another thing I didn't talk about, Figgy, they, they gave the game on a silver platter to the Mets. Can we talk about how bad the Phillies looked? Won their bullpen. Who, by the way, Zach Wheeler should have stayed in that game. I don't care. They gave up three runs. You know your bullpen is a is a human, you know, trash. And he should have stayed in that game. And point B is that I will be first to admit I was wrong. I would have kept Zach Wheeler because for most of this game, he was reeling through the Mets order and I would have paid him uh, with what we're watching now. They handed the game from the bad defense. DD wasn't making plays at short, just base running blunders. I mean, they said, here, Mets, take the series, get your fans pumped. And the Mets said, no, you guys could have it. So the, they'll play the Phillies again, three, three versus the Braves, three versus the Rays, and four at the Nats to close out the season. And the Nats look like a beatable team. 
team, but even those games won't be winnable. So, Figgy, it's what, what's it going to take? 18 games? What are you going to say? 12 and 6, maybe 11, uh, 11 and 7 to sneak it? 11 and 7 at the worst? 11 and 7 at the worst. Honestly, 11 and seven at the worst. I think that, that you can sneak in with that. And it all depends because you got to see what everybody else is up against. You know, the teams in the West that are facing the Dodgers and the Padres and going to get beat up by those those two teams. You know, that those are the guys that are on the outside. So the Giants, you look at a team like the Giants who over the past, I don't know, past week, they've uh, led the national league and hitting. So the giants have woken up out of nowhere. Um, and now you're seeing and this is what the schedule was set up to do. This is why they wanted the, ex- the expanded playoff because everybody still has a shot. You're talking about teams like the Orioles and the Marlins who were thought to be the basement dwellers of each of their divisions. Looking at all we have is to hold on for the next 18 games. And that's what makes it so exciting. So it is exciting baseball. It just, sucks when it's losing baseball games when you shouldn't be losing those kinds of games. I'm going to make a song about Brody being a con man for the next show. Oh um, boy. I might have my roommate make me another beat. Uh, maybe you will, you, you haven't done your part of the talent show, so you might have to sing on the next episode. Oh. Amazing. Got true. Got talent. Amazing. Got talent. I don't know. Amazing. Got true. Got talent. Uh, <laughs> coming up next on ESPN eight, the Ocho. Uh, yeah, this is, this is rough, man. So big games coming up, you know, I'm not giving up. I know I like to yell a lot and scream a lot. And I really, I just had to go for a walk just to clear. I look like the incredible Hulk on that walk to coffee. I mean, people probably (laughs) thought I was a crazy man on my walks. I was walking with a, a pep in my step, unlike Luis Rojas, who is not. And I'm telling you, got a clean house, Steve Cohen. It seems like the sales, I mean, Outside of the approval of the owners, it looks like the sales on the edge of being finished. And finally, you know, he could get these guys out of town. It's going to be a tough future for the Mets as a lot of prospects have been traded by Brody. As you said, what would you, what'd you call it? A, a, th- a five-year plan on a three-year plan? What is it? Uh, he, he can't have a five-year plan on a three-year deal. Oh, I, have, I have no plan here on this show because it has just become... A mess. The the good thing out of it, we'll close on a positive note before Steve Traxel, uh, is Michael Conforto. He has uh he has been an MVP candidate. Figgy and one thing Steve Cohen's got to do when he gets here is give him a long term deal. He's arbitration eligible one more year. He's making eight million or would have made eight million in a full season this year. Uh, you have to lock him up long term. Three forty eight, seven home twenty six RBIs. Hard to say he's not an MVP candidate. Tearing the cover off the ball. He's also making some great throws. He made that great throw to third to hit the base runner, but a, a laser from third off uh, from right field off balance to even come close to getting uh, Hoskins in the tenth inning. So everything Conforto's doing has been great, and he's got to be here for a while. Yeah, there's only two words I'll give you that makes it uh, a little discerning, and that's Scott Boris. Um, he's a Scott Boris client, and uh, if you think he's going to take a team-friendly deal, that's not happening. So new ownership is going to have to really show some kind of uh, power right out the bat to come out with the checkbook and say, all right, let's just sign this check over because we know you want to have him in the middle of that lineup uh, for the foreseeable future. So whatever the deal may be, I mean, you see what these guys are getting that are top-ranked. Uh, top caliber type players. This guy's a 30 home run, you know, close to 100 RBI every year kind of player. He's been the the middle of this lineup as the transition happened from David Wright to where we are now. He's been that one consistent, like quietly, where everybody's worried about, 
you know, Cano and the trade and everybody's worried about, you know, can Jacob do it again and carry the whole pitching staff? You lose Syndergaard, you lose uh, Stroman, you, you're sitting back and you're saying McNeil's not hitting like he did before. Alonzo's not hitting like he did before. They're going through that sophomore slump. Quietly, those guys are starting to hit a little bit, but it's always been Conforto right there in the middle of that lineup, which I don't even know why you would pitch to him. There's no way to almost pitch around him because he's so good right now at hitting the ball to all fields. And when he does that, he's as good as anybody in baseball, man. He flattens that bat out and is able to hit the ball to left field with such authority. Um, he's been a pleasure to watch all year long. Uh, his his defense has been sharper. His all-around game has gone up this year. And so uh, I don't know what it's going to take. i just tell you this right now. I talked about it last year when they said, who would you rather keep, Zach Wheeler or Syndergaard? And I said Zach Wheeler. And I knew it was going to take around $100 million to get Zach Wheeler. And, and, you know, it's nothing to scoff at. But at the same time, you realize that Zach Wheeler had become and turned the corner from being a thrower to being a pitcher. The guy that we see now doesn't care about strikeouts. He can get strikeouts. He can work his way to strikeouts. But if he can get an out, an out in two pitches or less, hey, I'll take that all day. And he's cruising along in that game. And even when they took him out, only 80 some odd pitches. I think in the fifth inning, he had like 52 pitches. And I'm laughing going, he's just making this. It look seemed so- like every pitch he threw figure was a strike. He was attacking the zone nonstop. He, and that's something that he took to the next level in his game. He went from being a power thrower and trying to blow people away to saying, you know what, if I get ahead and stay ahead and his fastballs in on on J.D. Davis all day long were just in on his hands, he couldn't do anything with it. And then he left some pitches out over the plate and the Mets were able to string together four doubles in that inning, which is, you know, not normal. But at the same time, I think if I need to stretch a guy, I'm giving him one extra inning and then going to the bullpen. You know, the Phillies almost paid for it, but they wound up winning in the end. So that that's where I think we are with a guy like Conforto is that, yes, you have to pay him. It's not going to be cheap, but we'll see if uh, Cohen has the, um, the wherewithal to do that ahead of going into arbitration that last year. He's also a handsome son of a bitch. I mean, bring bring him back. I mean, this guy, his smile alone. I mean, when he, I remember the game when I was at when he uh, won the game and they ripped his shirt off. I mean, ladies everywhere where they screenshotted that. And uh, <laughs> he is just so good and so handsome. So six, six tool player. Six yeah, tools. six tooler. Yeah, had the six tool. Right with the ladies. Beauty. Right with yeah. the ladies. Uh, Michael Conforto, stay here a long time. Me love you long time. Um, so let's end it on that. Well, actually, I'll end it on this. Is that your cousin might have made a great T-shirt of the show that got rave reviews yesterday as I was watching with some Mets fans. And if you follow me at Jake Brown Radio, follow Figgy at Figgy NY, let us know if you guys are interested in this shirt. We are thinking about mass producing them and uh, at least going into next year because the hope is next year we're back at the stadium and doing some games and broadcasts at City Field, McKellar's, McFadden's, and we love to sell them, try to, you know, send, have money to charity, maybe Team team Lifeline with you, Team Perry, um, and put it to a good cause. So if you're interested in the shirts, let us know. I've gotten rave reviews so far. You have a Spotify code on the arm where you can scan, you can put your phone up, scan it, and you can subscribe to the show from my jacked up bicep. So you could come to my shirt and subscribe it. I'm gassing myself up. It's it's pretty average. No, it's getting pretty big. Um, but you could scan whoever's arm as Sarah rolls her eyes watching this right now. Um, you could scan the arm. So whoever's arm it is, if it's small arm, big arm, all arms matter. And I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna need an epidural to keep listening to you, Jake. This is enough. <laughs> 
Figgy doesn't know how he works with me twice a week, and any any more than that, he'll he'll jump off a cliff, which I was ready to do <laughs> after the game today. So let us know if you guys like the shirts, and we'll maybe make some more and put them out there. Coming up next on Amazing But True is Figgy knows about talking to me a long time. A guy who pitched for a long time in, in games was the human rain delay and the most winningest pitcher of the 2000s as a starting pitcher for the Mets. It is the great Steve Traxel joining us next. Joining Amazing But True now is a pitcher that spent six seasons with the Mets from 2001 through 2006. In fact... He won the most games for the Mets in the 2000s, and he's just three wins behind Jacob DeGrom's 69, nice, wins in a Mets uniform. He won double-digit games in five of his six seasons in Queens, including a 15-8 and season in 2006 in that NL East championship year. He was also a 1996 All-Star with Sammy Sosa and the Chicago Cubs. It's Steve Traxel joining the show. Steve, welcome to Amazing But True. How are you? Doing very good. Thanks for having me on, Amazing But True. Of course. And, you know, obviously the nickname for you is the Human Rain Delay, but in fact, you have a beer coming out called the Human Rain Delay, and we love beer, and we love drinking and Mets pain, so tell us about your beer. <laughs> yeah, it's, there's a brewery and restaurant group out here that I'm a veteran in San Diego called Mason Ale Works, and there's another big brewery out here you've probably heard of called Stone. Everybody knows Stone Brewing, and uh, we did a little collaboration. Started it three and a half years ago. Did our first batch, aged it in some neutral wine barrels and some also a wine freak. And then we did a second batch two years ago and a third batch one year ago. And we did a little blending session with it about six months ago. It's been sitting in bottle, and it's actually ready to come out hopefully in the next 10 days to two weeks. Playing the words of my pitching style. Took three and a half years to make it as well. So. <laughs> and, and that's perfect timing because in 10 days we'll be celebrating the end of the Mets season and we'll need to drink lots of beer. So make sure you send some to Figgy and I to drink in our pain. Just inevitable pain every single year after year. And, you know, the human rain delay, I love it, man, because it's funny because I always say in 2002 I had a Saturday plan for games. And, you know, we it was a lot of Saturday afternoon games. Me and my dad would go and – you were pitching on a lot of Saturdays, and we had to cancel a lot of dinner reservations because of you, but I will say that they won a lot of those games. I mean, you won a lot, but people do know you as the guy who took a while on the mound. Where did that come from? Was just, was that just like a creature of habit, but where did it, you know, the human rain delay element come from? Yeah, it definitely wasn't something I ever planned out and wanted to do. The actual in the moment of it did not seem like I was taking all that long. Just kind of something I was doing between pitches as far as like visualizing each pitch and then I'd visualize it again and visualize it again. <laughs> <laughs> and in my head, it was going, you know, ultra fast microseconds each time. But uh, in reality, yeah, it definitely was taking a lot longer than I expected. It's something we really consciously worked on my first couple of years in New York with Charlie Huff. It got a little bit better, but still not great. But then again, compared to today's nine inning game, quite a bit quicker than what we're getting nowadays. <laughs> yeah, listening to the way that you had to go about your business, I, you know, I'm reminded of a sloth, right? Because you think you're moving so fast and everything is actually so much slower in reality. Watching you on the mound, you got to work alongside two Hall of Famers with Pedro and Tommy Glavin. You know, what was that like? And to be the guy that sat there and quietly with 15 wins tied for the the team lead what was it like to work alongside those guys um it was amazing i mean tommy and i spent a lot of time you know hanging out in the planes just talking pitching and you know working on cutting the plate in half being the type of control guys we both were of course i didn't have his type of control but 
you know, how you could take one pitch and cut it from the middle and you cut sink it, you're basically you end up with two pitches out of one pitch and then you're if you're able to do that with a change up, now you got four options with one pitch and you're still on the same plane. So being able to like dissect the plate the way he would and and be able to try to incorporate that into my game was great. I mean with Pedro, the thing that he amazed me the most with was his mental aspect and how quickly he was able to, you know, be completely locked in. And then like I remember one game the sprinklers came on in the outfield at Shea. And he turned around, was laughing and having this big grin and pointing at the outfielders getting wet. And the sprinkler's gone off. And he turns around, looks at the mound, and in a fraction of a second, he is back in the zone. Something like that I was never able to do. For me, getting into that type of zone was like a two- or three-hour process. If I came out of it like that, game was over. There's no way I'm getting locked in like that. For <laughs> no, without a doubt. And then also I could see the analytical mind of yours working with Glavin, trying to, you know, actually dissecting the strike zone. Rick Peterson must have been uh, in, in part in those conversations. What was it like working with Rick Peterson also? Yeah, definitely. You know, those two, you know, they're both lefties, so they, they've got that whole nother mindset of things. But, yeah, a lot of those conversations took place with, with him as well and with Tommy all at the same time during batting practice. You know, someone would throw a bullpen, and, you know, we'd just hang out down there afterwards instead of shagging balls and just kind of, stand over the mound and just kind of draw lines with our foot, like bring a cutter back in. You know, I just kind of how late in my career with uh, Andrew Jones with the Braves, he was a guy that always killed me. And never in my wildest dreams did I ever think of throwing him front door breaking balls. We're always trying to get him to chase. And then after having these conversations, like, you know, he start a breaking ball off at his hip. He's going to give up on it and bring it back on the inside corner. And that was just something that kind of brew out of those conversations and turned into something I was able to have success with with a guy like that. Rick Peterson's a guy who could write a book just from his McDonald's order. I mean, I have a long voicemail from Rick Peterson. That guy could talk your ear off, but obviously one of the better pitching coaches in the game and a pitching coach for that memorable team. How fun was that team, man? You started the game that the Mets clinched the NL East on September, I believe it was 18th, 2006, and you pitched a beauty, and you were part of such a special day in Mets history. Obviously, we missed out on the World Series on a curveball that I still have nightmares <laughs> over. But, I mean, you were part of a huge day in Mets history, clinching that division. And part of, you know, I was 15 years old. That was such a memorable team with Delgado and Beltran, that pitching staff. That must have been fun that year. Yeah, I mean, that, my whole time in New York, I really enjoyed. You know, I spent six years in Chicago, and obviously that had a whole nother level of fun. We had a little bit of success there as a team. And when I became a free agent, you know, I, I kind of made it a point. I wanted to go somewhere where there was going to be the pressure to win. You were expected to win every year, but you were also going to be part of an organization that was going to have to put some money out and go get players and to put around you. No place bigger than that than New York. You know, maybe Boston is a close second. And being second in New York behind the Yankees was something that we, you know, as a team, we didn't want to have to talk about. It was always brought up. And every single year, I felt like, you know, we were in competition. In 06, we came so close. Such a special team. Such a special feeling of having that competition and being able to go out and kick guys' ass half the time. And that was my whole point in wanting to go to New York was to be able to get myself involved in that you know, year in and year out. That game seven, can you just take us through the ups and downs? I mean, it's like a typical Mets. It's like, you know, today, even today, it was it was going great. They come back after losing, and then they blow it. Andy Chavez catch. I mean, you guys probably are cloud nine. Just take us through where you were, and then the game ends on the curveball. Just a mix of emotions that day. 
Yeah, just absolute typical New York roller coaster, really. Everyone wants to focus on that nasty curveball wing right through, and they do forget about it. If Indy doesn't make that catch, curveball never would have mattered really at that point. We would have been pretty much out of it. But going back and forth, and, and you know, I was down in the bullpen just in case whatever could possibly happen, and so many things we can go back and point to throughout that series. And I still feel like you know we should have won, and I really think if we had gotten to the World Series that we would have gotten the job done. But the one thing I learned about being in Chicago is you never, ever sleep on the Cardinals, no matter where they're at. I learned that early in my career, and the Cardinals always find a way to get stuff done. Screw the goddamn Cardinals, man. I hate everything about that damn franchise. And you were at the Cubs so long, I'm sure you did. I'm in a beer group on Facebook with a bunch of guys from St. Louis, and they're always posting these craft beers and their Cardinals stuff. And I don't even talk about the beer half the time. I go to your glasses suck. I'm going to send you guys some good glasses. <laughs> a follow-up on that real quick is, wasn't the Mets bullpen right next to where Andy made the catch? Weren't you looking kind of like, you could essentially, I think, if I'm not mistaken, see the ball because, you know, he kind of snow-coned it. You basically could see the ball. Were, were you right over the wall there in left field? No, we were down to the right field side. So, uh, so we, still had, we still had, I mean, an amazing view of it and, just the silence of when it happened, we were just like, oh my God, did that just happen? It was like, it was just unbelievable. I mean, it's got to be one of the top five catches that I ever witnessed live in person. Oh, without a doubt. Trax, what's your favorite, your most memorable game? A lot of people, you know, always speculate back to that 2006 start, but what's for you, what's your most memorable game that you've had? Just from a personal level, I pitched a one hitter in Anaheim. If I remember correctly, it was on Father's Day. And I grew up, you know, 10 minutes from that ballpark. So my dad was at the game. You know, I had a lot of friends and family there. So to throw that one hitter on Father's Day with my dad in the crowd, that was definitely probably the biggest game as a Met personally. I still remember X time getting that little blooper over second base to break it up. Another guy I hate. (laughs) I know. And then Tim Salmon hitting an absolute rocket to end the game to center field to, to Shinjo. And he takes the ball and he chucks it into the crowd. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Love Shinjo. The official game ball is, is, is forever lost, but you know there's, there's always a bunch of game balls, so I just grabbed the, you know, the next best one and had everybody you know get it signed and put the stats on it and have it in my in my office now. So, but yeah, having that game you know with my dad at the game that was pretty special. That's awesome. Ever a hitter that you just hated to face? Who was the toughest out for you? Oh man. So many guys, really. I mean, before I got to New York, Edgardo Alfonso, which always killed me. Moises Alou was probably up there. God, Cabrera when he was with the Mets. Derek Lee. All these right-handed guys I mentioned earlier. Andrew Jones always killed me. I had no problem with Chipper, but it was always Andrew Jones that was going to get me beforehand. I had more success with lefties. This is my split finger, but the righties were the ones that killed me because my curveball was more of a true 12-sticker. It wasn't a sleeper. Like get guys to chase, so those type of guys are the ones that kill me. Why didn't you use your split finger more against the righties? I would. It just didn't have the same effect. I guess it would start in or third and break in towards their back foot, and I wouldn't get the swings and misses on it as much as I would with the lefties. A couple of years later, actually, when I even left New York, I started spotting it away to righties. I kind of started off kind of at that same conversation we had back with Tommy and Rick. You know, you started off the outside corner and trying to bring it back. Wasn't ever able to do it with a lefty like that Maddox tinker we could start it inside and bring it back in but i could do it with my split with righties i didn't ever want to try to mess with it with the lefties because i'd you know leave it over the plate too much yeah well that's one of the crazy things is that when i was coming up i remember coming up to the minor leagues and it was like no right on right change-ups never ever ever do it and then as you're getting to the big leagues they're like yeah it's a great pitch if you can do it but i haven't worked on it 
for the last six years. And now all of a sudden I'm supposed to use them in the big leagues against these right-handed hitters that, again, you make a mistake over the middle of the plate with something soft and they're pulling it out of the yard. That's pull power. So it's amazing to see how you talk about the game evolving and you have to adapt to that. So using your pitches in a different sequence, like the front door cutter and also the split finger on the backside, that's something you have to do as a pitcher to survive if you don't have that plus-plus stuff. Yeah, you always have to turn a tinker and come up with new stuff. I mean, I remember watching Tommy first time. He went, what, probably 12 years before he threw a lefty-lefty changeup because that was a no-no. And it's like, well, why is it a no-no? Because these guys have never seen it. It's going to be completely new for them. And same thing. It's like, as long as you can execute it, you always have one extra little potential weapon that you can go to in, a, you know, in any situation. All this pitcher talk I feel left out. I'm like the kid who gets picked last on the kickball team, which I was probably accustomed to in, in elementary school. I needed a pinch run of the Mo Vaughn rule. Steve Traxel joining us here on Amazing But True with Jake and Figgy. Did you want to come to, back to the Mets after 2006? Was that opportunity presented to you or no? It was not presented to me. Obviously, I would have loved to have come back. I loved playing in New York. Like I said, it was something I wanted to do. I still felt like it was going to be a really good team. I felt like I had enough to contribute there. Yeah, unfortunately, it didn't work out. So, yeah, I went to Baltimore and then did okay there. It was a tough struggle with that team, but did well enough to get traded back to Chicago for their playoff run. And then I went back to Baltimore for my final year. You know, Baltimore was fun. It was interesting. Tough division. Those two years with the... Blue Jays and Boston and the Yankees, but yeah, it was a nice way to finish up. It would have been nice to finish up in New York, but that's how the game is. You, can, you know, you can't you can't hold it against anybody, and uh, you learn very early on that it's definitely a business, especially if you ever go to arbitration or airport. You oh, learn really yeah. quick. <laughs> yeah, and that's where you learn all about your analytics. Everyone says those are new. You no. read anybody? If you read my brief before going to arbitration. I sat there going, how the hell did I not win Cy Young? <laughs> Those numbers look, I'm the greatest pitcher ever. But then you read the opposing one, and you're like, how the heck am I even in the big leagues? I think. I can't believe I'm here. No wonder they don't want to pay me because they don't even think I should be on the team. Oh, yeah. It makes you feel real bad about yourself when you go through that whole thing. No matter what, you come out with all these doubts all of a sudden. One last thing for me is talking about getting a chance to come back to New York and you get a chance to put on a Met uniform again until – Last year, when we brought you into fantasy camp, talk a little bit about your experience with fantasy camp down in Florida. Oh, man, it's an absolute blast. I tell you, these guys, I think it's like, what, we had 110, 112 guys or something like that that come in just that first week that I've been to. And these guys live and breathe baseball, New York Mets baseball, and just getting out and getting on that field and playing. And they have, it's just so much fun hoping really that we get to do it again this year in in January just with all the COVID going on. But these guys look forward to it and talk about it all year long, and they go out and they compete like every single game is game seven. To go out there and coach these guys a little bit, I still think some of them have more fun getting ripped on by us and just having us yell at them and tell them how bad they are more than than they want to be coached. You know, you know, there's a few of them, you know, they post game, they want to sit and have beers and tell the same stories we're telling now. They just, they love it and they eat it up. It's a lot of fun. I look forward to it every January. Yeah, that's one of the things, having Steve Traxel along there, we try to have different guys every few years just to kind of mix it up. And when they had an opportunity to bring tracks in, everybody's like, yeah, we got to have them in here. There must be so many things you can. And so you see all these guys congregating around Traxel because he's the new blood, right? And they all want to get all, all these beer, stories. Too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They want to get all the stories and they know he likes his beer and he likes his wine. So they want to take him out drinking. So, hey, it's a great time for that. But at the same time, you see these guys who are playing seven games in five days, which is 
pretty much a schedule how it was all year long with COVID at the major league level. But you see these guys who haven't played some of them in 30 years. And here they are over 50. They try out fantasy camp. They hang out with some former Mets and they go out there and they leave it all on the field. And I'm telling you, they leave it all on the field. Hamstrings left, right and center. And oh to God, have an opportunity. Fingers. Yeah. Oh, God. Broken fingers. We saw a guy pop his shin open, needed 26 stitches, didn't miss a game. He came back the next day with stitches in his leg and put a little shin guard on and kept playing. And he was 77 years old, by the way. So I got flying in from from London to play at Minsink. <laughs> yes, yes, big Herbie, big Herbie, seven foot two from England. So they come from all around. These guys love Mets Fantasy Camp, and I just have to thank you for being such a great ambassador of not just Mets baseball, but of the game of baseball because these guys love you, and then they reach out to me all year long, and they wanted to make sure that I uh, gave you a shout out for them. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, no, I, I look forward to it. Keep in contact with a lot of them on Facebook. My wife's family's in Jersey. So we were just out there a couple of weeks ago down at the Jersey Shore and met a few guys out down in Long Beach Island, met a couple of them in Morristown, you know, had some beers and stuff. And, you know, I keep in contact with a lot of these guys, you know, away from that, too. So it's the friendships that are generated, not just between those guys, but between the, you know, the tired guys and these guys is great. And it's a pretty special event. Well, Steve, we're looking forward to the Human Rain Delay beer coming out. We're looking forward to trying it. We'll give you our honest critiques if it's good or it sucks, but I assume <laughs> it'll be good and it's beer, so it's got to be decent. Steve Traxel, all-star, six season with the Mets, 66 wins. Jacob DeGrom just passed him this season, so it took DeGrom, the, the human Cy Young, a long time to <laughs> pass the Human Rain Delay in the win total. Steve Traxel, we love you here in New York, man, and hope all is well out in San Diego. And we'll talk to you soon. Appreciate it. All right. That sounds great, guys. Thank you so much. And that'll shut the door on episode 25, the Pedro Feliciano or Kaz Matsui or Duck Your Heads, Bobby Bonilla episode of Amazing But True, our New York Mets podcast from the New York Post. I feel like we've got to pay Bobby for that mention right there. But thanks to you, Jake and Sarah McCrory, for producing the show. Subscribe to Amazing But True wherever you get your podcasts. If you're using Apple Podcasts, please rate us five stars and write a nice review. We appreciate your support. For Nelson Figueroa, I'm Jake Brown. They should still be paying me to be a fan. We will be back on Thursday after the final two games against the Orioles and look ahead to the three-game set in Buffalo. Yeah, that's right, against Ooh, the Buffalo. Blue Jays before the Jets play the Bills in Buffalo as well. Stay safe, folks. We'll talk to you Thursday.